Good morning. Morning. Good morning. Oh, and in case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. If you're an avid fan of sci-fi, specifically TV sci-fi, look closely at the credits of The Truman Show, and you may find something very strange. One of the film's title cards reads Screenplay by Andrew Nichol, which would suggest that Nichol's screenplay is an original screenplay. Now, great as Nichol's screenplay is, it does bear an uncanny resemblance to not just one, but several TV shows. Let's begin with a 1960 episode of the long-running sci-fi TV series, The Twilight Zone. A world of difference was about Arthur Curtis, who discovers he is really Jerry Reagan, a movie star whose career is on a downward spiral. All right, we'll try it again, shall we, Jerry? We'll pick it up from the phone call. You're phoning your wife to tell her to meet you downtown at 3.15, right? What are you talking about? Where am I? What is this, some kind of a joke or something? Now let's move forward a decade to 1971 for the British TV series UFO. An episode from that year, Mindbender, has one Colonel Ed Straker, who finds himself in an alternative reality where he is acting on a TV show called UFO, and his character is called, yes, Colonel Ed Straker. Mr. Straker, the series is going to pot. The scripts are old and hackneyed. The entire production is lifeless and trite. I don't think it's doing anything for you. I know it's not doing anything for me. Moving forward to 1989, but back to the Twilight Zone, there is an episode called Special Service, in which John Zellig discovers that his entire life is a TV show beamed live into millions of homes around the world. That's all right, sir. Don't worry about a thing. Be fixed in a jiffy. No, but it, it oh, felt. yes, a shoddy workmanship. I'm terribly sorry about all this, sir. It's just the way things are these days, you know. Always rush, rush, rush. Nobody giving a fig for quality. Not like the old days. Hey, hey wait a minute. What do, you, what do you think you're doing? Fixing your mirror. What's it look like? But, but there's a camera back there. Where? I don't see a camera. Well, of course not. That's because you just covered it up. Did I? Well, that's one job done then. Good day. And stepping into the 1990s, episodes from two more shows, Growing Pains and Erie, Indiana, were based on similar premises. All of which may prompt you to ask, why wasn't Nickel and or Paramount Pictures sued for breach of copyright? To answer that question, we need to go back to the original 1960 episode, A World of Difference from the Twilight Zone. Why didn't the author of that show sue not just Nickel for plagiarism, but everyone else in between? The writer of A World of Difference was none other than Richard Matheson, who just happened to write one of the most important sci-fi novels of the 20th century. I Am Legend, published in 1954, was a catalyst in the development of the zombie genre and expanding it onto an apocalyptic global scale. Maybe he was flattered that someone thought so much of his work that they were inspired to do an imitation. But either way, it meant Nickel was in the clear. What may be of further interest is that Nickel's initial draft for The Truman Show was called The Malcolm Show, an idea that was, for many of its early drafts, a very dark and different prospect than the finished product released in 1998. How dark? You can read the early versions online, and in so doing, you can see why the script attracted the attention of some very talented and dark-minded directors. Among them, David Cronenberg, Terry Gilliam and Brian De Palma. 
This was when the script was set in a very real New York City and driven more by conspiracy, voyeurism, paranoia and dark sexuality. But for a variety of reasons, scheduling, creative differences and budget conflicts, Cronenberg, Gilliam and De Palma each stepped away. Then in stepped Peter Weir and things started to click. Let's go now. I'm ready to go now, why wait? <laughs> Early bird gathers no moss, Rolling Stone catches the worm, right? <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> Truman! Where shall we go? Where shall we go? <laughs> Under Weir's instructions, Nickel lightened the mood of the script so it became comedic. But most crucially of all, it drew up a mythical journey and that mythical journey became a quest for freedom through self-realisation. In all, Weir had Nickel rewrite the script close to 30 times, each version jettisoning the weirdness and replacing it with wonder, until in the end, Truman transforms from a young, naive man who discovers not so much that he has been spied upon, but who he actually is. Thus, the journey becomes about forging a new consciousness. Once Truman is able to do that, he is free to live his own life. Yet, Weir did not throw the baby out with the bathwater. There is still a lot of darkness in Truman. Only, under Weir's direction, the darkness was not in the plot, but rather retained in the themes. Weir's approach was rather like that of a Renaissance painter. You don't need an educated eye to see that whether it is Titian or Tintoretto, no one puts the darkness front and centre. If that were so, there would be no contrast, no background, and no added dimension. In a nutshell, without contrast, you have no perspective. So, for materials such as The Truman Show, it is best to begin with the light, place that front and centre, and then use the darkness from the background and surrounding areas to slowly encroach upon the supposedly happy characters in the foreground. Which is why casting Jim Carrey was a masterstroke. Carrey, the funny man, is so light, bright and breezy, his Truman simply can't see the darkness surrounding him. But we, the audience, can. We can hear it also in the empty, endless lies and deceptions of his TV family and friends, and we know that everything is fake. And that differential nudges the film away from comedy and into near despair. Let me get you some help, Truman. You're not well. Why do you want to have a baby with me? You can't stand me. That's not true. <laughs> Why don't you let me fix you some of this new Mococo drink? All natural cocoa beans from the upper slopes of Mount Nicaragua, no artificial sweeteners. What the hell are you talking about? Who are you talking to? I've tasted other cocos. This is the best. What the hell does this have to do with anything? Tell me what's happening! Well, you're having a nervous breakdown. That's what's happening. Developing that theme, Weir changed the film's setting from the teeming metropolis of Manhattan, replete with its steaming subways and vaulting skyscrapers, and headed south down to the sunny seaside resort of Florida, called Seaside, one of those master-planned communities 
that continue to appear in clusters across Florida's panhandle. These completely synthetic suburban centres, which go by such names as independence, celebration and destiny, all claim to provide an idyllic community experience, but really offer only a deeply homogenised and tightly regulated life. To which I say, welcome to hell. He's heading west on Stewart. Stand by all extras. Gloria, he'll be on you in about 90 seconds. Pops, make sure the coffee's hot. Okay, he's making his turn onto Lancaster Square. In addition to that, Weir then went into heavy consultation with cinematographer Peter Bijou, investigating CCTV and all manner of surveillance techniques. Using the flat, indiscriminate lenses used on such formats, Bijou then took his cameras and blackened out the corners of the frame, so we are always reminded that not only are we watching Truman, but other people are as well. This places Truman at the centre of an enormous conspiracy, one worthy of Franz Kafka. But as the years have rolled by and the internet has taken a more central role in our lives, Nichols' concept is no longer the realm of science fiction. It is reality. Almost all aspects of our lives are being watched. There are cameras everywhere and almost everything we do is under surveillance. More importantly, while we are being watched, we are also voyeurs. All of which means that whatever sense of privacy we may have had is being eroded on a daily basis. Now, you can say that privacy is an illusion, and such illusions date back as far as the Bible, when King David stood upon the roof of his palace and spied down upon Bathsheba as she innocently took to her bath. But just because it has been like that since the Old Testament doesn't mean it's right. Our Facebook, Twitter and Gmail accounts our credit cards and loyalty card transactions, our checkups at the doctor, you name it, the ISPs and insurance companies have it all. Now, while that can be of benefit, the real problem lies with the fact that all that information can be used against us. In other words, those in control become the enemy of the people. In a world where technology reigns supreme and the designers of those technologies are treated like deity, it means that God has turned against us. And that's what happens in The Truman Show. Just consider the name of the TV show's producer, Christoph. It's okay, Truman. I understand. I have been watching you your whole life. I was watching when you were born. I was watching when you took your first step. watched you on your first day of school. <laughs> the episode when you lost your first tooth. <laughs> you can't leave, Truman. I said that Weir nudged the Truman Show to near despair. But what saves it from the sadness is that Truman escapes. He undertakes a near-mythic voyage, almost reenacting the great quest of Christopher Columbus. Don't believe me? The boat Truman uses is called the Santa Maria. And finally, when Truman reaches the end of the world, he turns to Kristoff and says, I never had a camera in my head. So, there is a silver lining, and that's what the Truman Show is about. Self-realization, forging a new consciousness, living authentically, being honest.